Welcome to another gospel message from St. Luke's Anglican Church, Clovelly. Hi, friends. Uh, welcome. Uh, some of the, you I can see are here for the first time, and it's really wonderful to have you with us. We are working our way through the book of Numbers and have got to the final episode. And if you are listening, you would have realized it's not some cutesy passage to put on the fluffy cat poster. The reason we're here is because we're a church that works through the whole Bible. And the reason we do that is because we want to have a real relationship with God. And to have any real relationship with any person, you have to allow them to challenge you and to contradict you and to say some uncomfortable things at times. And some of these passages that we're going to have a look at together are the passages where God's that uncomfortable friend saying some awkward things that maybe we don't want to hear at first but need to. And so, friends, I'm going to to pray. I'd ask you to bow your heads, and we're going to ask for God's help to understand what he's got to say to us today. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for uh, all your Bible, uh, that it shows us um, the full array of human experience and emotion, uh, the highs and the lows, and some of the horrors. And we pray today that you would help us to understand Uh, what you're trying to tell each one of us here, um, what you're saying to us in the Bible about both your justice, but especially about your love. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak to each one of our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you hope will be the last word on your life? What do you hope will be the last word on your life? When you go to meet your maker... And uh, when you've gone and someone's going to write like 10 words on a tombstone, because that's all you get, what's going to sum up your life? Um, Supposedly Frank Sinatra's uh, kind of, I did it my way, is like, you know, the favorite song for funerals now. So maybe that's it. You know, he did it his way. She did it her way. That's, you know, that's the tombstone. Um, Maybe it's mother of three or grandfather of seven or renowned middle manager or... She believed in God, she just made sure it never took over her life. What would it be? What what do you want to frame your life? These confronting events in Numbers chapter 25 are the closing chapter on a whole generation of the Israelite people in the time of Moses. Uh, This book that we've been looking at, the book of Numbers, is called Numbers because there are two numberings, two censuses. The first one, chapter 1, of the generation who were meant to kind of go in and enjoy the promised land and it all fell apart. Chapter 26, what comes straight after this, is the second census or numbering where the next generation are getting ready to go and enjoy all that God has for them. And that makes this chapter like the last word, the memoirs that frames that whole generation of Moses. And uh, we're going to see that the narrative is actually a bit disjointed and abrupt. You're like, hang on, what happened there? But perhaps that's a hint of the disorder of the human heart. Um, Numbers chapter 25 is trying to tell us this is the last word on a generation of people whose hearts were kind of searching everywhere, trying to find hope instead of finding hope in God. And really the message is today that the human heart is so easily seduced away from God, but that God's heart still burns for us, 
even if it will cost him his own blood. And so we're going to think about that, the human heart and God's heart. Okay, that's where we're going today, and uh, we'll kind of work through the passage. So firstly, the human heart <clears throat> is so easily seduced away from God. Now, the, where are we up to? The ancient people were slaves in Egypt. Um, God has rescued them and liberated them and freed them. And then at Mount Sinai, although the whole nation belong, uh, the whole earth belongs to God, He's chosen this one nation to be His special people. And it's almost like a marriage ceremony. They're kind of betrothed to God, you know, forsaking all others till death do us part. It's that kind of uh, situation. Uh, there's a ceremony, almost like a marriage ceremony, in Exodus chapter 24. And it's a very important verse, Exodus 24, verse 7, where the Israelites make a vow. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Right? We will be obedient. That's our vow. And for his uh, part, God vows that he's going to provide for these people and protect them and give them a home. By the end of the book of Numbers, uh, the Israelite people are kind of on the plains of Moab. That is, they're basically beside the promised land, ready to go in. And one of the local kings is a bit worried about what's going to happen. And so he hires a sorcerer called Balaam to curse the Israelites. He knows there's too many of them that um, this king, he's not going to be able to defeat them with the sword. So he's going to hire a sorcerer. And last week we saw how God blocks that sorcerer. And he won't let him do it. Um, it's like uh, when Israel is down in the plains, God is up in the mountains protecting them. But it turns out that Israel's downfall doesn't come from the sword or sorcery, but seduction. Their own sin, actually. Uh, let's come to Numbers chapter 25. And I'm going to read the first couple of verses. Uh, if, you, if you went to the other reading, we're on page 133 of these Blue Church Bibles. Uh, you can look on your smartphone if you're a digital person. Uh, Numbers chapter 25, uh, verse 1. While Israel lived in, I like to say, Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Right? right when God is protecting the people in the mountains, the people are prostituting themselves in the plains. They're giving themselves to other gods. It's a scene reminiscent of the golden calf. Uh, for those of you who remember that, um, in Exodus 32, there's basically the people are seduced by this mix of sex and feasting and worshipping statues, idols. In this case, a god called Baal, um, the god of the Moabite people. And when the New Testament looks back on this in 1 Corinthians 10, the first lesson it tells us is how easily we are seduced by sex. By sex. Now, there's a bit of background. You need to understand this, right? In the Bible, sex, <clears throat> sex is this beautiful and wonderful and powerful and sacred, almost fire. It's this intimate connection that God has created. Uh, you read a book like the Song of uh, Songs or the Song of Solomon, and it's full of pillow talk about female desire and about male desire. So I'm just going to read some. It says things like, 
On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. And it's racy kind of stuff. And maybe a little bit more poetic than I'm in love with your body. Sorry to Ed Sheeran. Um, it's something kind of, you know, like this is beautiful, poetic, erotic language. You're very kind, sir. Um, and because, because God has invented sex to be this beautiful, powerful, wonderful thing, it's got this power to overwhelm us, um, to control us, to hurt us, and to be used against us. You know, we're uh, watching a new TV show, and it opens with this um, married woman starting an affair, and then has some doubts and regrets, and then, you know, they, then they do take the next step, and they tell each other, if we're going to do this, we have to make sure no one gets hurt. But you know what happens, right? Someone gets hurt. I don't know how many sex scandals we need, virtually every institution in the Western world, including the church, to show that kind of we are, our human you know, willpower is powerless against the power of sex. Now, the atheist, um, Alain de Baton, uh, has kind of written about this. He's saying, even after the sexual revolution and sexual freedom and sexual liberty, we find ourselves in this awkward situation. There's a quote on the screen. He says, anyone who's experienced the power of sex in general and internet pornography in particular to reroute our priorities is unlikely to be so sanguine about liberty. Sexual images can indeed overwhelm our higher rational faculties with depressing ease. Because we have to go to work, commit ourselves to relationships, care for our children and explore our own minds, we cannot allow our sexual urges to express themselves without limit. Online or otherwise, it would destroy us. And you see what he's saying? Um, the, uh, wherever you're coming from, the reality of kind of sexual desires is so powerful that they can overtake us and overwhelm us and control us and lead us places that in the cool light of day we wouldn't choose to go. Our sex has this power so that pornography could cost you your job or an affair could ruin your life. Our sexual desires could so divide us and our loyalties, they could even lead us away from the God who made us and seeking him. That's how powerful they are. Um, Aldous Huxley, an atheist man, admitted he didn't want Christianity to be true, let alone all the questions there whether it's true. He just didn't want it to be true. Why? Because he wanted to have sex with whoever he wanted to have sex with. But he had the honesty to admit it. But then, today's passage isn't just about sex. In fact, sex never just about sex, is it? I mean, the sexual revolution kind of promised us sex could be just some, just another activity that, you know, human beings might choose to do together. But sex is always more than just sex. It's, it's intimacy. It's to, be, to feel loved. It's to be wanted. It's about power for some people. It's about escape. It's about worship. And in fact, seduction is a word that we use not just about sex, we use it about money, the seduction of money, or the seduction of power, or here we're going to see the seduction of 
worshipping other things. And what's so seductive in Numbers chapter 25 is this enticing mix of sex and feasting and worshipping this God called Baal. And so it's interesting, like the sorcerer Balaam, who we met last week, he knew there was another way to destroy the Israelites and still get his payday. Um, Numbers 25 is, is not some innocent boy meets girl story. What's going on here is another story of men using women. Uh, it was the king who ends up sending the women to seduce the Israelites, to, to come, and, come and worship and offer sacrifices to this god Baal. Because what Balaam knew is what verse 3 says, that if the Israelites yoked, you know, tied themselves to this other god, that the Lord God would be angry and would be jealous. And the tragedy is the hearts of the Israelites are so easily seduced to get into bed with a foreign god. But that's because idols are always seductive for you and for me. They keep seducing us. They promise us uh, that they can fulfill us or that they can free us. If you sacrifice yourself for your career, then your career will love you and look after you. If you worship the God of money, then you'll be secure, popular, comfortable, lonely. Actually, they don't do that last one, do they? But that's the point. They offer all, they offer the world, but don't deliver it. Um, idols end up actually controlling us and trapping us. I mean, there are leaders um, who have covered up horrors uh, that have gone on in the world because they are so attached and in love with the idol of power, they just can't let it go. It's got to control over them. And friends, sadly, that includes the church and includes Christians. You know, it is far more likely to be the seduction of the shiny things on offer in this world, not persecution, that ruins you living a life that matters for God. Seduction, not persecution. Far too often, Western Christians especially have been in bed with the gods of money and the gods of power and the gods of approval. And in some quarters, God is already cleaning house. There are churches that have shut down and denominations that are falling apart because God is pulling the rug on those idols of money and power and approval. Because you see, God is a jealous, jealous God. He's jealous for his people. The way that a husband or wife should be jealous for the one that they love, the one that's been betrothed to them. The author Becky Pippett puts it like this in these words on the screen. She says, think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. We respond with anger. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race that he loves with his whole being. God's jealous, angry, 
because he loves us. And we read it in verse 4 as well. God's anger is kindled at the cancer of Israel's spiritual adultery. For prostituting themselves, we read that Moses is told uh, to hang the chiefs who are responsible, um, to exercise capital punishment, which was the sanction that was agreed on back in Exodus 24. The funny thing is, we don't know if Moses ever obeyed that command because the next thing, Moses is only talking about obeying and we don't know if that next thing that Moses is talking about even happens because it's finally interrupted by some action. Interrupted by some action that is um, brazen, defiant, cheeky, up yours kind of action. I'm going to read from verse 6 of Numbers 25. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. What's going on? Some people are weeping at the chaos, and we'll get to that in a second. But this man is saying, look at me, everyone. I'm rebelling against the God. I'm going to sleep with this woman in my family's tent as an act of worship to this God Baal. Look at me. And in case our Western sensibilities aren't already offended by some of the things that we've read, the next thing that happens is that this young punk priest called Phineas takes desperate, risky action and he spears the young couple. And what we only learn afterwards is that a plague had broken out and tens of thousands of people had died. And when no one could stop it, and when no one was zealous for God's honour that's, um, that's been maligned, um, it doesn't seem like Moses has done anything here um, or any of the leaders of that generation. Phineas kind of bypasses the hierarchy and takes this desperate, risky move. And presumably goes on to save thousands of lives more because what we read in verse 8 is that thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Now in 2003, there was a man in the Hunter Valley crushed under one of those like three-ton mining trucks that had overturned and pinned his arm. He didn't want to wait for the rescuers to see if maybe they could salvage his arm. He thought the matter was urgent and instead of waiting, he took a desperate risky, crazy move and cut off his own arm with a Stanley knife to save his life, he thought. He's Phineas. It's kind of that desperate, risky, almost crazy kind of action. In the face of the burning anger of God that Israel deserve, with a burning passion for God, Phineas somehow, we're told, atones for Israel's spiritual adultery. And the, the plague stops. Does it offend you? Does it offend you? These Old Testament passages remind us that God is a consuming fire and that the wages of sin is death. 
But those verses I've just quoted are from the New Testament, not the Old Testament. Because the God of Jesus, the God of the New Testament, the God of love that we know of, is also a God of justice. But many of us, I feel this, many of us find it hard to swallow this idea that God would judge, especially in kind of our Western culture. Maybe we kind of come at it and say something like, you know, isn't this just a relic of the dark past? There's this kind of um, angry God uh, who wants to punish and demands blood. Wouldn't it just be better to kind of move on and, uh, and just kind of concentrate on a God of love and forgiveness? But here's a question. Why aren't you offended by a God who forgives? Did you get that? Why aren't you offended by a God who forgives? Because there are many traditional cultures in the world where the idea of turning the other cheek, that idea of forgiveness, that idea of not bringing vengeance, even if it is thoroughly deserved, is seen as weak and unfair and unjust. And in traditional cultures, the idea of a God who would forgive offends people's deepest senses and instincts of what is good and right in the world. And yet they have no problem with believing in the idea of a God who would bring justice to the world. So it's interesting, right? Our, our discomfort with the idea of a God who judges is a very Western cultural objection. And we should be careful whether we want to decide that Western culture is superior to the other cultures of the world. Next month, we're going to actually spend some time digging into some of the Christian roots of justice and love that we enjoy in our Western world. But you know, um, for now, uh, Miroslav Volf is a Croatian theologian, and he's a man who has witnessed firsthand the violence in the Balkan states. And at one point, he writes these words on the screen. He says, In a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. A God who's just going to let the horrors of this world go as if it doesn't matter, he's saying, when you've seen that, that God would not be worthy of your time and your worship. He goes on in that section of that uh, particular book and says it's it's only from the quiet of a suburban home in the western world not a bloody war zone that we can kind of loftily entertain the idea of a god who who's so loving he wouldn't ever judge or bring justice to the world my friends you don't want to live in a world without justice do you without a god who judges but of course, if there's a God who, who burns with anger at the injustice of this world, the way we are so easily seduced to other gods, then there's a problem for you and for me, isn't there? It's no help actually pretending that a loving God doesn't judge. What the gospel, the good news of Jesus says that helps us here is saying, it says, although our hearts are so easily seduced from God, God's heart still burns for us. Enough that he would love us at the cost of his own blood. 
And when Jesus walked into the world um, 1,500 years after these events, he burned with this passion for God. He walked into the, the temple and he overthrew the tables of people turning the worship of God into a money-making exercise. Jesus wept over Jerusalem at its half-heartedness and its hard-heartedness and its compromise and its corruption. And then on the cross, Jesus, with this burning passion for God, interrupted the burning justice of God for you and for me. Not by demanding blood, but by offering his own blood, the blood of his very own son. You know, there's times I don't know how to make sense of everything that happens in Numbers 25, but I, I just know this bit. Phineas's spear may have saved Israel for a day, but the Son of God was speared for you. Do you remember on the cross? To save you forever. And why? Because although our hearts run all over the place, his heart burns for us with a love enough to bear his own anger for you and for me. So here's where we need to finish today. If Jesus has this burning passion for you that cost him his life, what would stop you living a life of burning passion for God? What would stop you? Now, this is a call to live a life that matters, a life that's passionate, a life that's not seduced but is sold out. For the Son of God who loved you and died for you. I mean, we, we are just so easily distracted and seduced. We're, we're all the time kind of hedging our spiritual bets. A little bit like that awful, naughty song. I hate this song. It's a horrible, sexist song. And I'm going to use it to, to just say how horrific our spiritual adultery is. Do you remember that song that says, A Little Bit of Monica? Do you remember that one? It's like we're saying sometimes in our lives, a a little bit of money in my life, a little bit of Jesus just on the side, a little bit of comfort and status over there, as if Jesus could just be one thing that we flirt with in our lives and our hearts, when really we are called to go all in for Jesus because he went all in for you. And friends, just to be clear, To live a life zealous for God never means implementing God's justice the way it did in the Old Testament. It means just being jealous for God's honor and for all that is good. A zealous life is a life that would be offended, not so much at God's justice, but at my half-heartedness. A passionate life would be a life that is offended at the way that we've let church hierarchies get comfortable and even cover up abuse. A passionate life is a life offended at how blasé we are about environmental stewardship and the treatment of refugees. A zealous life would be a life offended that, I mean, there are a lot of people zealous for football right now. The World Cup, state of origin. Do you know that domestic violence in New South Wales spikes during state of origin and when England lose the football? That is horrific. That should offend us. We should be offended that so many of us and so many in our city give so little thought to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You know, a passionate life would be like there was a Christian doctor named Nathan Barlow. He, he was working in a hospital in Ethiopia about 50 years ago, and at one stage he had a toothache and had to fly out of the country to see his dentist. While he was there, he told the dentist to take out all the rest of his teeth and put in false ones so he would never have to leave the hospital and the people he was caring for again. That's risky, right? It's crazy. It's desperate. It's loving. It's passionate. A zealous life, like you may have heard this, but the Tasmanian Anglican Church, to fund redress for the victims of historical sex abuse With no other funds available, they are selling half the churches in Tasmania. A life that burns for Jesus like a very ordinary um, businessman named Stan Gerlach. He was giving the eulogy at a friend of his's funeral. And uh, he was kind of, you know, talking about this man's life. And then he finished by talking about Jesus. And he kind of looked out of the funeral and he asked the question and said to them, kind of put it to them, you know, You never know when God's going to take your life. And in that moment, there'll be nothing you can do to stop it. Stan Gerlach looks around and says, are you ready? And he got down and he sat in the front row and he had a heart attack and he died and never got up. His life was framed by a passion for Jesus. Because Jesus had shown a passion for him enough to die for him. Now friends, I've been at this for long enough to know that it's easy for our passion for God to fade. Um, Our hearts are so easily seduced by other things. But you will burn with a passion for Jesus as long as you keep your eyes on the one whose passion burned for you. Enough that he died for you on the cross. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the good news of the Lord Jesus that we can dare to call the almighty God and judge of the universe our Father. As we read some of these incidents today, they confront many of our sensibilities, Lord. But Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who even when he saw the way that we are so easily seduced by false gods, that the Lord Jesus gave up his life and his blood for us. And so, Father, I pray for my friends here today, uh, some who are exploring the Christian faith, others who have been at it for a long time, some of us who are on fire and some of us who feel stale, that you would please give us such a vision of Jesus, of his burning love for us, that took him all the way to the cross. And we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about St. Luke's Anglican Church, please visit www.clovelly.org.au.